0: Hello and welcome to the Unorthodoxy podcast. I'm really glad that you're joining me and I'm hoping that what I have to say here is going to be at least a little interesting. I want to start with a question. Have you ever tried to communicate something to someone and no matter how hard you try to explain yourself, the person you're speaking to just doesn't seem to be able to hear you? Maybe this is just my experience, but I'm going to go out on a limb and assume that maybe there are at least a few others out there who've experienced something similar. You talk and you explain and you you try to be as honest and as earnest as you can be, but sometimes it's a little bit like teaching a pig how to sing, which just wastes your time and irritates the pig. I've had a few experiences like this lately, and um one of them. I'm just going to use one as an example. It has to do with me trying to convince a particular charismatic Christian that he was utterly wrong in his claim that the word Easter is related to the name of the goddess Ishtar. No matter how much historical evidence I threw at him, he remained absolutely adamant that he was correct. And it was just exhausting and frustrating to just realize that no matter what I said, he would have a response that made me ought to be in his mind wrong. And I think that's that's the frustration. You're talking and it's a bit like talking to a wall. G.K. Chesterton in his book, Orthodoxy, equates this sort of stubborn to resistance to fact. Um, He equates this resistance to a kind of insanity. And that's exactly what it is. It it was a resistance to fact. I was using all the kind of research and historical arsenal that I could come up with, and and nothing went through. So this is Chesterton's explanation of insanity, and I just think it's wonderful. He says, it's quite a long quote, and it's, it's really good. The madman's explanation of a thing is always complete, and often in a purely rational sense, satisfactory, Or to speak more strictly, the insane explanation, if not conclusive, is at least unanswerable. This may be observed specially in the two or three commonest kinds of madness. If a man says, for instance, that men have a conspiracy against him, you cannot dispute it except by saying that all men deny that they are conspirators, which is exactly what conspirators would do. His explanation covers the facts as much as yours. Or if a man says that he is the rightful king of England, it is no complete answer to say that the existing authorities all call him mad. For if he were the king of England, that might be the wisest thing for the existing authorities to do. Or if a man says that he is Jesus Christ, it is no answer to tell him that the world denies his divinity, for the world denied Christ's. Nevertheless, he is wrong. But if we attempt to trace his error in exact terms, we shall not find it quite so easily, easy as we had supposed. So, some people are on, on maybe just not worth argue, arguing with. Um, still, I, I always seem to hold out that maybe it's possible to convince even the stubbornest of people, that's not a real world word, the most stubborn of people, Which brings me to really what I want to talk about here. What does it take to be able to communicate effectively with anyone? Or maybe I can ask the question differently. What makes genuine dialogue possible? To provide something of an answer, I want to turn to a few of the patristic writers. These were the early Christian theologians who were trying to figure out what Christianity was all about this was back when it was young, and in some ways it was still developing. In particular, they wanted to figure out what it meant that God had communicated with people through Jesus. In many ways, uh, as Shane hips says, Christianity can be understood as a communication event. This idea, because it it centers on this idea of God communicating with people through Jesus. Now, I realize... With that some of you may be a little iffy on the whole God Jesus relationship thing, and I totally get how weird the idea of the Incarnation is, but it's still very interesting to hear what the patristics say about God communicating to to human beings because it adds a slightly different dimension to how we understand what makes dialogue itself possible. So I'm going to be using a lot of uh, theological language, but I think the applications are quite wide. A founding principle is going to be helpful to begin with and I'm going to say it even if it's totally obvious, dialogue requires participation. I don't know if you've ever listened to really little kids converse. It's really fascinating and it can be quite hilarious. So I'm just going to use an example. One kid will say something like, my dad's the greatest. He's a policeman who fights crime. And the other kid will respond with something else completely unrelated to that statement. Something like, I went to the park with my parents this weekend, and it was awesome. And the supposed conversation will continue without the two kids necessarily engaging in a genuine dialogue. They take turns to speak, but they're really just rehearsing the art of conversation. They're involved in two interrupted monologues. That's all. This doesn't always happen, of course. I know kids will participate in conversation from time to time, but this exchange of monologues is actually very common. And the point is that they're learning how to participate. Participation is essential for dialogue. Now, if you as an adult would want to talk to a kid, it's generally true that you would not want to start with or include words like hippocampus and sesquipedalian and perfunctory. To speak to a three-year-old, you will tend to find need to find a way to speak at their level. This is why Eusebius of Caesarea, who wrote this around the 4th century, said this, As a fitting means to communicate with mankind, God assumed a mortal body, something with which they were familiar, for like, as it is proverbially said, loves like. Like loves like. So, a um, very simple thing, God takes on a mortal bo- body, a bit like as C.S. Lewis says, a human being becoming a slug in order to talk to slugs. Gregory of Nyssa echoes the sentiment when he writes uh, the following in his book, Answer to Eunomius' Second Book. He says this Though exalted far above our nature and inaccessible to all approach, like a tender mother who joins in the inarticulate utterances of her baby, God gives to our human nature that which it is capable of receiving. Thus, in the various manifestations of God, to humanity, he adapts himself to humankind and speaks in human language and assumes wrath and pity and other emotions, so that through feelings corresponding to our own, our infantile life might be led as if by the hand and lay hold of the divine nature by means of the words which God's foresight has given. That's the end of the quote. So uh, Gregory talks quite a lot of this uh, about this idea. So in the same book, Gregory of Nyssa says the following: He says. So we maintain that the grace of God spoke in many and various ways to the prophets, ordering their voices comfortably to our capacity and the modes of expression with which we are familiar. And and Gregory talks about this idea of how, how can the great be contained within the little. In order for this to happen, it would need to descend to a lower level. The lower level in this case being the level of our limited comprehension. Okay, so... I've just quoted a lot of of Gregory of Nyssa, and there's a lot here, but I want to point out a few things. The one is this idea of familiarity. To communicate effectively, we need to be talking the same language. The rhetorical theorist Kenneth Burke calls this identification. He writes, "You persuade a man only in so far as you can talk his language by speech, gesture, tonality, order, image, attitude, idea, identifying your ways." with his. And this seems straightforward enough. To have a dialogue, we need to be on the same page, or to use a different metaphor, we need to be in the same room, or somehow connected via media. Dialogue is only possible when both parties are willing to, in some sense, descend into the flesh, like God, to meet humanity there. Any discourse, including what I'm communicating here, is always in danger of alienating people, especially when it resorts to jargon. I know that jargon can be helpful as a kind of short wa- shorthand uh, way to speak to those who are in the same field or the same culture, but it's also potentially a threat to the very culture or field that you're in because if it alienates too much, chances are it'll seem irrelevant to those on the outside. It can also cause a kind of staleness of thought that prevents people from being aware of what they're actually saying, even if it's about their own worldview. And I find this this especially true of Christian culture. Christians often get very caught up in their own jargon. And I think it's it's so very problematic. My friend, the Easter Ishtar Conflator, the one I mentioned earlier, is just one example of this. But I'm sure you could come up with a few examples of your own. I'm sure there are people in your life that are just not speaking your language. Even if you both speak English, you may feel like you're communicating to a foreigner because language can also be language of the language of love or emotion of intellect, and maybe those things are, are missing. Gregory of Nyssa also mentions this really fascinating idea. He says, God gives to our human nature that which it is capable of receiving. A similar idea is found in his pronouncement that the fact that faith doesn't take root in everyone is owed to the disposition of those to whom the good news is told. Tertullian expressed another idea along the same lines. He says, to the weak and infirm, the moderate seems excessive. I love that. It's so so well put. To the weak and infirm, the moderate seems excessive. This idea is, to me, a perfect corollary to the idea of familiarity. Some people don't get what you're saying because they can't get it. Maybe they haven't had the same experiences you've had, or maybe they're coming from a different frame of reference, maybe with different ideological coordinates. Maybe, to use a metaphor, you're speaking French and she's speaking Spanish, and that's because that's the only thing you can do, and it's the only thing she can do. My point is that we each have what I'm going to call a capacity for understanding. This capacity can be stretched, but it is as finite as we are. People have different capacities. And if you think of this capacity as being similar to some of those shape-fitting games that kids play with when they're little, it may help. Some people can only receive the like the circle shape because that's how they're shaped or, or the square shape or to, to move it along. Some people can only receive the atheist shape because that's the shape that they are. And some people can only receive the charismatic shape because that's the world they come from. And it's the only thing that they can understand. Some people can only hear certain things because that's all they know. And that means that other things will be shot down, put out of mind, rejected, or, or just un- misunderstood in a way. To be very honest, I really struggle with the so-called Christian shape in this shape-fitting game that everyone else is playing around with. At least this, the Christian shape as it is generally understood in the culture that I'm part of. I'm much more of a skeptic or a mystic and an intellectual, and so much of the Christian culture around me seems to be credulous, uncritical, and rooted in a very narrow conception, I think, of goodness, love, and truth. Some of us don't like the shapes. That's the, maybe the labels that we've been given. And we don't want to play this stupid shape-fitting game. And yet, maybe that's what most people around us can handle at the moment. That's all they can do which brings me to this amazing thing that the writer Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He says, "For though I am free from all people, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. To the Jews I've become a Jew so that I might might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the under the law though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law." to those who are without the law as without law though not being without the law of God but under the law of Christ so that I might win those who are without the law that's a lot of words but you get the gist of it it's it's kind of dynamite because paul felt totally free from all the constraints of ideology and identity he didn't feel like he needed to be a quote christian or a quote jew or a quote roman he felt like he was a citizen of life and he'd he embraced this completely new way of perceiving things but he adopted the shape of jew or roman or gentile in order to help others see the benefits of the freedom that he experienced this new perception he wanted others to enjoy the same freedom that he did so in Galatians 3.28, Paul writes that there is this Christ consciousness that he has found. And in this Christ consciousness, which is this new way of perceiving things, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. Maybe in today's language we could stretch that. There is neither atheist nor theist, gay nor straight, local nor immigrant. Paul picks on all the central identities that people tend to hold on to, national, religious, and gender identities. And he tells us that they're really not that big a deal. At least they're definitely not the sort of big deal that we tend to make them out to be. But some people can't get beyond the shape-fitting game that they're part of. And that's okay. Gregory of Nianzius Uh, which is a very strange name. Gregory of Nianzius writes, God is pleased when we do what we can. And the same idea of doing what we can is also in the Didache. If you're doing what you can, that's okay. If someone you know is doing what they can, listening in the best way that they know how, that's okay. It's okay even if it frustrates you. So yes, There are those who can't get beyond the shape-fitting game that they're a part of. They just can't. And that's okay. And then there are those who just won't. They won't actually try to get beyond the shape-fitting game that they feel like they need to conform to. Gregory of Nyssa writes, If someone willfully closes his eyes in broad daylight, the sun is not to blame for his inability to see. We've all heard the phrase, there is, there is none so blind who will not see. A similar idea is found in the work of Theophilus of Antioch, who writes that for all have eyes, but the eyes of some are clouded by cataracts and cannot even see the light of the sun. Still, it does not follow that because they cannot see the light of the sun, that the sun does not shine. This may be tough news for those of us who feel like we need to be heard by certain people. Sometimes the people we most want to hear us just can't, or they just they just don't want to. But I think this sometimes explains why some people resort to coercion. Sometimes, as Slavoj Žižek points out, violence is... Kind of phatic violence he calls it phatic violence it's a statement it says, I'm here, please don't ignore me, please pay pay attention, but of course, coercion is not an option if you want your relationships to be good, according to the earliest Christian traditions and many that exist today. God is never coercive because love cannot coerce, and God is love. This raises a question which is put so well by Cyril of Jerusalem, he's another one of the patristics, in his catechetical lectures, he points out that some people may ask, if the divine nature is incomprehensible, then why bother even trying to comprehend it or talk about it? His answer is as follows. Because I cannot drink up the whole stream, may I not drink up as much as I need? Or because I cannot take in all the sunlight owing to the constitution of my eyes, may I not gaze upon what is sufficient for my needs or on entering a vast orchard because I cannot eat all the fruit in it? Should I go away completely hungry? True. And I think this is something that that I've been getting at. It's something that Cyril of Jerusalem seems to be getting at. We cannot always convince others. We cannot always understand everything this is just a fact and maybe it helps to know why maybe we're not on the same page maybe our audience cannot hear us maybe they won't we all have different capacities for understanding it helps though i think to to think about what our job is we can still be open we can still listen we can drink up as much as we need we can take in as much light as we need or eat what will help us to stay full maybe as William Desmond says the discipline of finitude will keep us in check. So in all of this I sincerely hope that at least some of this has met you where you are. Maybe you and I can be on the same page even though we're in different rooms. You're always welcome to stay in touch via Facebook. Uh, You can check out facebook.com forward slash unorthodoxy podcast and you can find me on Twitter. I'm fairly irregular there but if you message me I will of course get back to you. Uh, my Twitter handle is at Duncan Rayburn D-U-N-C-A-N-R-E-Y-B-U-R-N I would love for this to become more of a dialogue than it is at the moment. Although that said I'm very grateful to those of you who have spoken to me about the things that I've been, been saying here. Uh, believe me it, it really helps me to get a sense of where this this podcast can be going and I think It may evolve in in ways that I haven't exactly planned for, which would be great. So that's it for this episode. I hope that you will listen in again soon and that uh, this has been helpful to you. Take care, everyone.